There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Heredity Podcast. I'm Jeff Marsh. This week we'll be looking at a century of maize genetics and trying to explain the latitudinal biodiversity gradient. So then, prepare to be mazed. The most harvested crop on Earth, a crucial food and fuel source, and an important genetic model organism for around a century now. Maize has led to some game-changing discoveries in the field of genetics, and will undoubtedly remain at the forefront of this research for years to come. And so to celebrate its centenary, a retrospective has been published in the form of a review. To hear more, I called lead author Jason Wallace of Cornell University, New York. Probably the most important attribute of maize is the fact that we grow more of it than anything else. So it's an extremely important crop. Some of that goes for human consumption, a lot of it goes for animal feed, and then some is now getting funneled into biofuels. That's why we research it so much, is to try to make it better. Okay, so it's this fundamentally important crop plant, but it also has this rich history as a model organism for genetics research, right? Yes, and that comes from a few reasons. One, it's just a relatively easy crop to work with because it's large, so you can work with it on a human scale, and because the male and female flowers are separated, it's very easy to do controlled crosses. It also helps it has this tremendous variation that's accumulated over thousands of years where you can take two different corn plants from like one from the northern United States, one from Mexico, and one from Chile, and they'll look almost like they're separate plants. One could be no more than a meter high, none that will be five or six meters high. The kernels will look entirely different. And so there's a lot of variation there to work with, and that's why it's been productive as a genetic source, is because there's a lot of genetic variation that we can actually do things with. You mentioned then that um, it has been the subject of, of lots of genetics research. Well, one reason for that is that it's not so dissimilar to other species like humans and mice and stuff in that it's a largely outcrossing species. Yes. I mean, naturally made as outcrossing. It's wind-pollinated, it grows in stands, so usually it's an outcrossing. One thing that makes it nice for genetic studies is that you can actually inbreed it and it makes it easier to control for it. But since its natural habit is to, to outcross, then the genetic architecture is probably similar to other outcrossing species than a lot of the model plants that are selfing species. Okay, so we're roughly 100 years on since the dawn of this maize research. Let's pay some homage then to this plant. What have been some of the major advances brought about through this research? One of the big ones was a study of heterosis. That's the study of where if you take two unrelated individuals that are kind of breeding within themselves, either inbred or from a small population, and you cross them, usually their offspring are much more vigorous and healthy than either of the parents. A lot of work has been done in that in maize, and it's actually the basis of almost all modern maize breeding. Pretty much every, all maize grown is hybrids because you get this huge healthy plant out of these, well, these parents honestly look kind of small and sickly, 
but it's because of this heterotic effect, it's called, where you put the two unrelated ones together and they suddenly are a lot more vigorous. That's one of the major ones. Probably one of the most famous is Barbara McClintock's discovery of transposons, the little selfish gene elements that jump around inside your DNA. Uh, maze is just full of them. And so this showed that the genome isn't just something static that's occasionally accumulating, making a point mutation here or there, but there's actually little parasites living in all of our DNA that are jumping around and causing problems. Okay, and one of the things that surprised me about this research is just the size of some of these experimental populations. You, uh, you mentioned in your review the NAM population. Tell me about that. Yeah, the, uh, the NAM population, the Nested Association Mapping Population, is a huge project. It was a collaboration of our lab with about half a dozen other labs, and it took five or six years probably to develop. But the idea was that with MAVE, we have all this diversity, but it's really hard to really utilize it well. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, it's there, but because it's so diverse, it takes a lot of samples and a lot of computing power to actually pull information out of there. So the NAM population took the most common line, B73. It's the basis of a lot of modern maze lines, crossed it to a bunch of very diverse ones to make a bunch of families. And it's about 5,000 members, and I think it's still the largest constructed genetic population um, for this kind of research. And I suppose once you've got such a massive experimental population, you can start probing into interesting questions about genetic architecture of traits. Yes. I mean, there's all sorts of things we can pull out with there. I mean, one of the beauties of it is that because you can kind of share information across the families, since they're all crossed with B73, you can get a lot higher resolution and a lot more data. Um, the first one to come out with that was on flowering time. Basically, when does the flower actually come out, which is extremely important in corn because you want to have it just right so that it actually comes out in a timely manner, but not so late that your crop isn't done maturing by the time frost sets in and all sorts of other things. And because of the power, they're actually able to pull out I think it was just over 30 genes that controlled flowering time. Each of them have very, very small effects, things that you'd never be able to pull out in an individual mapping population. As a general principle, then, you've found that some of these quantitative traits have many genes all having a small effect. Yes. I mean, part of the power of NAM is that because you have the common parent, you can borrow information across the families and get not only a lot more power because there's so many samples, but a lot better resolution. Um, we can combine it using various tricks to get sometimes down to the single gene level, sometimes not. It depends on a few other things, but we are able to get a very fine resolution. And this same pattern seems to hold for a lot of other traits in maize, that there are a lot of genes of small effect. And we think this is partly because of maize's history. It has a very long history uh, with all these genes going around. When maize was domesticated about 10,000 years ago, because you don't just grow like five maize plants, you grow hundreds of them, then as it was happening, it still had a lot of plants coming in, a lot of its genetic diversity from its wild ancestors made it into modern lines, or at least into domesticated lines that modern lines have built on. Whereas with a species like humans, for example, we went through a population bottleneck uh, that really cut us down to just a few thousand breeding individuals, and so our genetic diversity is just a fraction of what maize has. In fact, if you take any two unrelated maize lines, there's more diversity at the genetic level between them than there are between a human being and a chimpanzee.
Okay, so what do you see as some of the, the biggest unanswered questions then that Maze is going to contribute to in the future? Uh, well, there, there's several, but the two that stand out in my mind is uh, epigenetics, which is the study of how things act on the genome. So not just the DNA strand itself, but tags that are put on and off of it to control it. And I'm specifically thinking about epigenetic inheritance, which is still a kind of controversial field, but there's some evidence that some of these tags can be passed down from parent to offspring and that they can influence traits. Because maize is so powerful and because we have all these, these very diverse, uh, very large populations, we should be able to use them to dissect some of this. Uh, I mentioned in the review that no one seems to have published a study about this yet, but it's a very hot field and so I suspect it will be coming out soon. The other one, and the one that I think is probably more relevant to the world at large, is how to predict phenotypes from the genome. Basically, genome sequencing nowadays is, okay, it's not dirt cheap, but it's getting there. And it'll soon be possible to just feed DNA into a sequencer and get out all sorts of information. But the fact is we don't know what it means yet. We can mark a few genes down, we can get a few mutations we know about, but largely it's just a big black box. But we need to figure out, we need to figure out what all that actually means so we can use that to accelerate breeding. There's a field called genomic selection that basically uses this type of approach where you take information on a bunch of individuals and how they grow in different environments and what their genotypes are, what the, their gene sequences are. And you can use that to predict how their offspring will do based just on the gene sequence. So you don't have to actually grow them up and type them out. If you can do this, suddenly you can grow and breed maize three or four times a year instead of the normal one to two you usually get. And so you can go get it going faster. Um, and that just helps with all sorts of normal breeding. And would you say that that was the ultimate goal of all this research? I mean, obviously there have been lots of interesting um, scientific discoveries, but is the ultimate goal to feed, feed the world? I'd say they're both important, and they're probably about equally important. I mean, feeding the world obviously has a much more immediate benefit, um, much more visible impact. But the basic understanding of how these things work is important for other research. Um, I mean, you can obviously tie it to medical or other research. If we find out how genes work in one organism, they're likely going to work the same in another organism or various trait architectures or what have you. Um, but part of it is just by finding all these things out, we get, we're empowered to do things. Now, what those things are, we can't always guess in advance. But that's why it's important not just to find the things directly related to breeding, but also to follow up on these more basic genetics questions, because by finding the answer to them, we'll be able to do other things which we may not be able to anticipate, but which will be very useful when we finally come across them. That was Jason Wallace of Cornell University. Next up, I spoke to Eddie Dow of Massey University, New Zealand. She's lead author on another review, which aims to summarise our current understanding of the latitudinal biodiversity gradient with rates of molecular evolution. And just in case any of our listeners do suffer from anatidaphobia, the fear that somewhere, somehow, there's a duck watching you, I should warn you that Eddie spoke to me from the edge of her university duck pond. Here's Eddie. So the latitudinal biodiversity gradient is one of the most recognizable biogeographic patterns in the world. And it's just the observation that when you go to the tropics, you see more species than you do in temperate regions. 
And that sounds like a simple thing that we should have a good explanation for, but we don't know why that occurs. There's been quite a few explanations given over the years. Area of land mass, and then um, more recently we've started to look at it in terms of evolutionary time and evolutionary history, shall we say. And there's the idea that maybe the tropics are a cradle of diversity in that they have more speciation in the tropics and more speciation outside of the tropics. Or maybe we have higher extinction outside of the tropics and lower extinction inside of the tropics. Okay, so one of these hypotheses is that the speciation rates are higher at the tropics, the so-called sort of evolutionary speed hypothesis. Could you talk us through that? Yeah, so the evolutionary speed hypothesis was one that um, Rode described in about 1992. And the idea is that there is something that is increasing molecular evolution rates, which is driving an increase in speciation rates. First of all, what do we mean by molecular evolution and how might you sort of speed that up? So molecular evolution is the rate of change in the DNA that we observe. So it's the result of two things. It's the result of your mutation rate and it's the result of your fixation rate. So how often a base changes and then how often that, that change is kept within a population. And so you can either change your mutation rate or you can change your fixation rate, both which could affect your molecular evolution rate. So what kind of thing might increase the mutation rate? Yeah, there's been a few ideas as to what could increase your mutation rate. Um, so one of the main ones that's been suggested is a metabolic rate. So if you have a higher metabolic rate, um, you might be producing more free radicals which can damage your DNA and therefore increase your mutation rate. Um, another one is generation time. So each generation you have, say, a certain amount of mutations that just occur during gamete formation. So if you have more generations, then you will increase your rate as you can get through more reproductive cycles in the same amount of time. And then there's the idea of UV directly affecting rates UV doesn't have much support behind it, but it has been suggested. And just to be clear, there is actually evidence that there are increased rates of molecular evolution closer towards the equator. Yeah, there's been quite a few studies done now that have shown an increase in rates towards the centre. So we wrote this paper because we felt like we were doing the same sort of things over and over and weren't really moving forward. And what we need to now do is go out and test some of these ideas as much as we can as to which one could cause this apparent increase in molecular evolution rates towards the tropics. And I read in your review that sort of central to this debate is another conundrum, which is does this accelerated molecular evolution speed up speciation or is it the other way round? I mean, is speciation causing the increased molecular evolution? Yeah, that is the big question. Speciation itself tends to occur in like small isolated populations and therefore you get an increased rate of molecular evolution during natural speciation process due to the same effect you get in small populations where you have um, faster fixation rates etc due to population size and then the opposite of this is the idea that well if you just have a lineage that has a faster rate than another lineage it might speciate faster than a 
than a lineage with a slower rate because it's creating more, potentially, more diversity for selection to act upon. And um not really sure which way around it goes, actually. <laughs> is it agreed that speciation is the fundamental cause for the higher biodiversity? Yes, that's a good question. Um, this is, again, one of the problems is that uh, several areas of biology are looking into the biodiversity gradient. So you've got paleontologists, molecular evolutionists, and then you've got like ecologists. And um, what we study doesn't necessarily overlap very well. And I think it's something that we need to do in the future is to work together to better understand the gradient. So molecular evolutionists, we're not particularly good at looking at extinction rates. Well, we're probably better than we were, but mostly we look at net diversification. So the combination of speciation and extinction, whereas paleontologists, they get to look at extinction rates as well as speciation rates. They've found mostly that there does appear to be an increase in speciation rates in the tropics, as well as an increase in extinction rates outside of the tropics. So it is probably a combination of both. And in terms of really nailing down a causal link between increased molecular evolution and increased speciation in the tropics, how are you going to do that in the future? There is a couple of things that people are starting to look at now because the two ideas of what drives what do create slightly different predictions. You get the prediction that if speciation is causing an increase in rates, then you're probably going to be seeing small populations at the time of speciation events. And it's more of a fixation rate difference as opposed to if you you have a higher rate and this causes more speciation, that might be a mutation rate difference. So there's possibly a way to sort of model between those two, but it's going to be difficult. <laughs> And are you confident that we're going to explain the latitudinal biodiversity gradient in your lifetime? I hope so. I do. I think it's possible. I think we just need to go back to answering a small part of it at a time, you know, just looking at one aspect and really trying to nail down that aspect before moving on to another one. And is your quest to solve this conundrum simply, oh, that was a noisy duck, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm outside what we call the vet pond, which is a big pond full of ducks and swans and other things. Is this just a quest to explain this kind of curiosity? Or is there any kind of application of understanding how to increase speciation? I think I, there's a lot of interest in it, just the interest state. But then there's also... Um, as climate change and things taking effect, understanding how speciation works becomes much more and more important as to see how our impact is going to affect things in the long run. That was Eddie Dell of Massey University, New Zealand. And that's it for this week. Join us next month for another episode of the Heredity Podcast. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 